I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society. We are very pleased to have Atlas Society senior scholar Stephen Hicks today to discuss the topics, Whites Did Not End Slavery. Uh, after Professor Hicks' opening comments, we'll take questions from you. So just click uh, request to speak if you have any questions, and we'll try to get to as many as possible. Uh, Stephen, kind of an eye-opening title. I'll let you uh, take it away. You'll have to unmute. All right. Thanks for the introduction, Scott. Yes. Uh, let me make a, partly a journalistic point and one conceptual point in these opening remarks and then turn things open for discussion. Uh, in my career, I, I trained as a philosopher and I've been uh, a philosophy professor for, for many years writing. I've never until recently engaged with racial issues, partly because I don't think there are any philosophical issues about race. Uh, philosophy operates at a level of generality and abstraction for, for human beings, and there are so no uh, racial differences uh, to the extent such things exist about uh, epistemological standards and moral standards and so forth. Uh, but also it was uh, partly biographical for, or autobiographical for me, in that when I was growing up, I grew up in Canada, uh, racism was not really much of an issue. Uh, and so it wasn't until the United States when I moved here for graduate school that I started to become aware that uh, uh, kind of racial attitudes and race consciousness was much more of a much more of an, an issue. Uh, and I can only, when I think back on it, recall three times growing up in my, uh, until I was in my early 20s that I kind of encountered uh, something that was clearly racist. And I remember each time it struck me as being uh, surprising. Uh, so when I came to the United States and uh, partly I was you know, in, in uh, graduate school working in higher education, and there's a higher level of race consciousness then among intellectuals, uh, but it was certainly an American thing. But uh, what has uh, led me in the, over the last year or two uh, to, uh, to speak and write a little bit about uh, racial issues has been uh, not so much driven by philosophical considerations, but cultural considerations. That there are some uh, uh, intellectual historical issues and some applied moral and cognitive issues that uh, our current uh, near obsession with racism uh, and, uh, and and reverse racism and so on have have driven. So, I want to make a, just a couple of uh, comments on on that. Now, the point of my title, and it is it is meant to be an eye opener uh, or at least an attention getter. But there, I think, is an important point about how to talk about racial issues. And we do know that uh, for some people, race is a deep conceptual and evaluative category. And they think in terms of it, and they seem to genuinely think in terms of it. For others, it's more of a tactical weapon or a strategical weapon, uh, making charges of racism uh, back and forth in order to score various sorts of various sorts of points and so forth. But on the issue of slavery, and I've been doing some some work on the uh, the issue of slavery and why the uh, the the you know the great achievement. It's kind of an astonishing achievement. You know, given uh, about 300,000 years of human history and slavery in pretty much every major culture that we know of, uh, no one really having a problem with it uh, on principle until the last couple of hundred years when uh, suddenly uh, in historical time, a few uh, lonely voices uh, started to raise principled moral objections to slavery. We started to see organized uh, movements against slavery and then legislation, military action uh, uh, over the course of the, uh, 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 the 1800s to get rid of slavery in the then more civilized parts of the world. And slavery really went on the defensive and was relegated to, to, uh, to backwaters. Now, I know a lot of people want to continue to blame and do blame storming for who's responsible for the existence of past slavery. Uh, I always like to uh, focus when I'm talking about these issues on the amazing issue of credit uh, and giving credit and, and and praise to those for the first time in history who identified slavery as a moral stain 
and then uh, engaged in the activist efforts and political efforts to actually uh, get rid of it significantly in, in most places, uh, most places in the world. So on this issue of blame and credit, this is where I want to make my conceptual point about who should get credit. And I think it's a mistake to say whites ended slavery. And I think it's the same mistake conceptually and then by by, by by implication rather in terms of justice to say that whites are, are, are to blame for slavery. So the issue, and I want to give you a couple of examples. I, uh, uh, I started noticing this a couple of years ago, but I didn't uh, keep track of it because I thought it was just some aberration, but I'm starting to see increasing references like this. So here is uh, just one from Ida Bay Wells, who was at, uh, may still be at New York Times, uh, and she's one of the lead people behind the 1619 Project, and someone on Twitter was giving her uh, uh, some pushback on uh, her attacks on white people as being bad and responsible for slavery. Uh, saying that, and this person had then said, no, it was white people who get uh, the credit for being the first to abolish slavery. And then she was pushing back saying, well, can you cite your source for white people being the first to abolish slavery? And the person then gave a, a, a historical source. Uh, it's a good historical source uh, on, the, on the history of, uh, of, uh, of world slavery, including recent abolishment efforts. And then saying, you know, so there, uh, you know, we white people should get the credit for for ending slavery. So it was a white versus black issue. Another one, uh, 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 I'll just read you. This was the person putting it in the form of a meme. Uh, more crudely, the person was saying, slavery is white history. How we survived it is black history. So here's a, a black person blaming slavery on white people and phrasing it in black versus white uh, uh, terms. And then someone responding to that uh, saying, slavery is the entire human history. How we abolished it is white history. And so there again, we have a pair of claims. One person wanting to say it's uh, uh, white people who are to blame for slavery. The other person saying it's white people who are uh, uh, to get the credit for ending slavery. Now, what I want to uh, to suggest and, uh, and if necessary, argue is that both sides of this uh, accusation and counter accusation and credit taking are misconceived. Uh, slavery is not a black white issue. You know, on the one side, we know that slavery was practiced by people of all ethnicities, all cultures, or all major ones anyway. And, and again, to the extent that race is a legitimate biological uh, category uh, by all the, the races that we, that we know of. So there's no one race right, that deserves blame for having practiced slavery. Uh, and so it's just a simple historical mistake to say that one race uh, is uh, is to blame one and and excusing excusing other ones. But then on the other side, uh, to say that the, there was one race that gets the credit for ending slavery, I think that is also a mistake. And the mistake is because if you go uh, to the 1700s and you look at the people who were uh, against slavery, uh, starting to make principled points. It wasn't only white people. Again, putting that slightly in quotation marks, uh, uh, there were people of uh, several races uh, who were involved in abolitionist movements. There were black people, there were brown people, there were yellow people, and so on. Now, it may be, uh, and I'm going to say this, uh, that as it happens, right, again, uh, emphasizing these kind of scare quotey things, that a majority of the people were uh, people who had white skin. But you also have to say at the same time in the 1700s, there were lots and lots of people of all races, including white people, who had no problem with slavery or who were actively promoting it. So I think in the first place, it's a mistake journalistically to say that there's something about whiteness, right, or being white, that is where we should be identifying the credit for the uh, the abolitionist movement. 
right? Uh, sometimes we use this formulation. It's not a perfect formulation. We're saying these people were opposed to slavery and they happened to be white. And what you're trying to get to there is that they were opposed to slavery for whatever reasons they had for opposing slavery. And the fact that they were white is accidental or happenstance, but it's not the reason why they were opposed to uh, opposed to slavery. So the the point here is that uh, the the looking at people's skin color or their racial grouping is not at all explanatory for why the people uh, were uh, were uh, were opposing slavery. The people who were abolitionists, some of them were white, some of them were not white. The people who were in favor of slavery, some of them were white and some of them were not white. Uh, that uh, is irrelevant to the position they took with respect to slavery and abolition. So the people who were abolitionists, they were abolitionists not because they were white, they were abolitionists because they believed that all human beings should be free. That is to say, they had an idea, they had a humanistic idea, or they had an enlightenment idea, or they were followers of John Locke and believed in, uh, in, in, in universal individual rights and, and various other figures of the enlightenment. So if we're giving credit, we're giving credit to people because of the ideas that they believe. That's the explanatory point, not the skin color that they happen to have. Now, this is an analogy. Suppose we were to go back and do biographies of all of the major abolitionists. And what we looked at was the color, not the color of their skin, but rather the texture of their hair. And it turned out, say, I'm just making this number up, you know, that 95% of the people who were abolitionists had wavy hair or curly hair. And only 5% of them had uh, uh, straight hair, very straight hair. If we were then to say, wow, it was the, the wavies who are responsible for, uh, for abolitionists, and we should be giving credit to the wavies, not the straights for abolishing. What we're focusing on is an inessential, irrelevant factor uh, and one that has no explanatory power. Right? It's not the texture of their hair that is why they are abolitionists for the same reason it's not the color of their skin or their racial group membership that is explanatory. Now, I'm making a big deal about this point because I think it's a mistake philosophically, uh, in this case conceptually, to, in, in terms of trying to explain why abolitionism came into existence. It was because of certain sets of ideas, not because certain people uh, who uh, predominantly had a certain skin color. So set that aside. I also think that uh, there is a tactical point uh, that's important here, that if uh, the current issue is that there are still a, a large number of race hustlers, right? Those, uh, that's a kind of a pejorative term for people who I think are using racism to, uh, to uh, you know, as a club or as a weapon in order to advance certain uh, political and economic agendas that they have. Uh, they're trying to stoke the fires of racism uh, uh, for, for various purposes. And so they will try to use, uh, to frame rather, issues in black versus white, say, to take one example and to pit those two groups in adversarial relations and then make accusations of, 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 of inferiority and guilt based on that kind of framing of an issue. Now, if that framing of the issue is wrong, and I think it is wrong, then it is a mistake to accept the black versus white framing of the issue. So rather than one side saying, oh, we black people think white people are to blame. Uh, the wrong response is as a white person or on behalf of white people to say, no, we reject the, that accusation and we think that white people are the good people. Right? You are still then accepting the framing of the issue in black versus white terms. That's the wrong framing. The right framing is to say that this uh, issue of slavery or the issue of uh, universal rights or the, universe, the issue of how people should decently treat each other in society, it's not a black versus white issue. It's a human issue 
and race should be irrelevant to it. There are general standards of human decency, general standards of human rights. That's how we should frame the issue more appropriately. Now, there's just one other quick variant on this I want to, to, uh, to put out there that sometimes people will uh, uh, not use the racial framing. Instead, they will switch to a nationalist framing uh, and I don't mean that in heavy duty nationalistic terms, but just to, to focus on nations or they will focus on ethnicity. So they will say, for example, the English get the credit for uh, for for abolishing for uh, uh, um, slavery, right? Or the New Englanders uh, get the, the credit for being the first or the British or whatever the group is. And I think that is fine because again, as a historical fact, I think it's true to say that uh, people who were British get the lion's share of the credit and people who uh, uh, were uh, in New England get the lion's share of the credit and some people who were in France and other places as well. So, so that's fine to point that out as a historical fact, but always remember that if we want to talk about the British and their efforts to abolish slavery, that still is a shorthand tag. The British people at the time uh, who were involved in the abolitionist movement, uh, 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 mobilizing the British Navy, doing various acts of parliament, doing various kinds of cultural education products. It's important that they were coming from a particular culture that we call British culture, but it's not uh, kind of a Britishness per se that gets the credit. It is individual people who happen to be British. And that's important to keep in mind because at the same time, there were lots of people who were British at the time who were indifferent to the slavery issue or still in favor of the uh, the British issue. So uh, use it as a shorthand, but uh, beware of uh, what often happens when ethnic labels and national labels are used in these kinds of discussions that an implicit collectivism creeps into the discussion. All right, so that's my uh, initial remarks and that's my explanation for the, uh, the somewhat provocative title let me uh, kick it back to you, Scott, and uh, open it up for discussion. Great. Thank you. Uh, good information. I'm, we're going to bring Ajam up here in just a moment. I, I just want to start uh, with, you know, in both of these cases, whether it was Nicole Hannah-Jones or this Uzi person saying slavery is white history, we're seeing where it's the um, kind of historically marginalized group that is uh, starting it with the collective grouping and, you know, saying basically to be white is to be a supremacist is, is some of what it boils down to. And then, you know, people are reacting and, and in a, you know, with a collective response. But I mean, shouldn't most of our anger be towards the ones that are starting it in the first place? Uh, when you say starting it in the first place, what's the it? The uh, collectivist framing or the racialist framing of, of history and, and our individual role for people that had the same skin color as our ancestors. Yes, I think that's always the best thing to say when you notice that kind of uh, racialist framing and racialist. I use that because it's a little bit softer. Sometimes it is more explicitly racist framing. But yeah, to, to point that out and say, just to say, no, this is not a black versus white issue. This is a human rights issue uh, or a human decency issue and discuss it only in that in that point. If the person uh, you know, doesn't want to accept that reframing, they just want to stick with their, their racial anger, then uh, just don't engage with that person. Yeah, I mean, that's. I can appreciate that until they start, uh, you know, making policy or they talk corporations into giving them millions of dollars for the, to like Black Lives Matter that the corporations don't even care how it gets spent. Right. Some sense of guilt. Right. So then if you're not talking about an individual discussion on Twitter, if you are in a corporation uh, or some sort of institution, these are, are, are becoming policies. Then yeah, then I would say it, it, to the extent you have a voice in that institution, uh, object to that framing, and uh, in a reasonable but firm way, say no. This is this is the the right way to frame this issue. We we believe 
in uh, uh, equal standards, uh, equal equal uh, decency uh, uh, with respect to all of our employees or members of the institution, and uh, no double standards. That uh, I hope that can be effective. Uh, Ajam, let's go to you. Thank you for your patience. Oh, thank you very much. So, first of all, uh, I'm not a native English speaker, so sorry for my poor English. Um, I wanted to, to, to point one thing. Uh, USA abolished slavery in 1865, France in 1848, and uh, British abolished in 1864. On the other side, Saudi Arabia, sorry, Saudi Arabia abolished it in 1962, Oman, Oman, sorry, in 1972, uh, Mauritania, or you say Mauritania in English, I don't know, uh, 1980. So would it be fair to say that um, the, the abolition of slavery maybe would not have anything to do with white, sorry, uh, skin color, but also culture and religion? Because uh, what all those countries who abolished, that abolished slavery uh, at the earliest have in common, they have a European culture and a Judeo-Christian uh, value, whereas uh, the countries who abolished, that abolished uh, slavery the latest, all have Islamic values. So, and I am an atheist, first of all, so I don't judge anything about that. So would it be fair, doctor, to say that uh, the abolition of slavery has also to do with culture and religion. Yes, I, I agree entirely um, that it's not a biological thing at all, uh, which uh, the claims about racial differences are to boil down to, but it, rather it is cultural differences. I think uh, you're pointing out the timeline of abolition, which cultures got to abolition first and did something about it, which uh, cultures got there a little bit later, 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 uh, that yes, it is a matter of cultural transformations going on, some cultures changing themselves first, and it was uh, Northwestern European cultures first that were doing so. And then uh, as they became more influential around the world, uh, they uh, were influential in part in changing other cultures. Uh, those other cultures, uh, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes less voluntarily, adopting those, uh, those Northwestern European values. Now, I think Northwestern European is uh, the a beginning. You went on a little bit further to say, another hypothesis is to say it has something to do with religion, that they had Judeo-Christian values. Um, uh, I think another stronger hypothesis is to say that those Northwestern European nations were the nations of the Enlightenment, where uh, religion became much less of an issue in those culture. There was separation of church and state. There were the humanistic ideals of uh, universal rights that had come into place, and those very quickly in the 1700s uh, became uh, transformative of Northwestern European cultures. And sometimes they, uh, they, they, they work with some versions of modernized Christianity. Uh, the Quakers do uh, need to be singled out here because they were uh, disproportionately uh, significant in early abolitionism. So there's something also going on in the transformations of religious cultures in uh, Northwestern Europe at the time as well. So. Yes, yeah, so I think that's that's right to say it is culture, but then culture is still a very broad label. What parts of culture was it? Philosophical culture was it? Political culture, religious culture. Uh, more, more drilling down is uh, is the right way to go. I think, as you pointed out, it, it has to do more in Europe, in the northern in, in the northern part of Europe, with the rise of humanism, uh, the, the period you call the Renaissance in France, where we decided to, to basically uh, cut, uh, I would say, to stay away from religion. Uh, that's the beginning of enlightenment, and that's also, to my point of view, 
the beginning of the evolution. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's that's correct. Yeah, it, you, you find uh, a few lonely voices here and there uh, objecting to slavery uh, across the centuries. Uh, most of the time they are objecting uh, uh, because they don't want to be slaves, but sometimes it's people who are themselves not slaves and they're making objections that slavery is too too barbaric or that some people were not uh, justly brought into slavery, the idea being still pretty universal that if you were conquered in war, that it was part of the, the natural or divine order that of course you could be taken into, into slavery. Uh, but then in the, in the 1500s and the 1600s, you do find some uh, mostly humanistic educated individuals. Let's say that they were fully humanistic. Uh, some of them were still quite religious, but they had had a, a Renaissance humanistic education as well. We started to raise more serious moral doubts about it. Then by the time you get into the 1600s, uh, uh, even more individuals, uh, and then it's not until the 1700s that you start to see movements for activist societies uh, directed toward uh, the abolition of slavery. And then uh, going back to your opening remarks, it's really not until the 1800s that we really see the uh, the, the first political movement. That actually is not quite correct. I think there were a couple of the U.S. states like Vermont that in the uh, the late 1700s, when they were still autonomous uh, or sovereign nations that uh, to get the credit for abolishing slavery first. And I think France also did, uh, but it, in the late 1700s, but it backslid and reintroduced slavery in the early 1800s. So yes, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, um, I think the timing and the timeline works out to support your hypothesis. Thank you very much, Doctor. I am arriving at my uh, job place, so thank you for the microphone and thank you for your lecture. That was really thank you. Thank you. And uh, if you want to uh, ask a question, you can raise your hand. I've got some other questions as well. Um, you know, just off that last one, I mean, how would you respond to people that say that? Oh, it's racialist. Uh, the Enlightenment only happened in Europe because of the bounty of slavery. And, you know, that what's attributed to ideas is really just uh, what today is, is, you know, white privilege. Um, I think I need to have that focused a little bit more. The bounty, the bounty of slavery made possible the enlightenment that's the claim well that that just uh that there was this extra leisure time to people to even be able to focus on ideas so much and uh mm. well yeah. i think then then we'd have to look at lots of other cultures that had an educated leisure class that uh, you know lots and lots of them across history that never did generate such an idea so you would still have to say why this particular uh, leisured uh, group of people came up with that idea just having leisure time doesn't seem like a sufficient explanation okay that's fair and i would also say actually the, <laughs> a lot of the people who were uh, early abolitionists were not leisured people per se but uh, people who were, uh, you know, very busy in their careers and had busy lives. Uh, I'm thinking of some of the, uh, in the 1500s, some of the Portuguese explorer types uh, who raised their voices. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't want to set this uh, hypothesis you're suggesting aside too quickly. I'm actually curious how it would uh, be worked out a little more so I would know what, what the premises are and what the claim just... causation is. Yeah, I'm just imagining how a, you know, kind of CRT type would try to be dismissive of the role uh, of enlightenment. Uh, it's not a, an, you know, it's not my theory. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so in that case, you would have uh, someone who's saying, okay, yes, it did happen during the enlightenment and it was enlightenment figures who get the credit, but then the, they would be trying to find ways to be ad hominem about the Enlightenment or diminish the achievement by saying, in some sense, 
I don't know. I, I'm just making stuff up as well. <laughs> the, uh, they were only able to think of those ideas because they were living off the backs of slaves in some ways. That's so what I was trying to get to. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't. I don't know what that would, what that would mean. All right. Well, I'll try to debate a lefty about it and see what they throw at me. See what they come up with. So, <laughs> well, we're very pleased to have uh, Atlas Society founder David Kelly here. Dr. Kelly, thank you for joining us. You will have to unmute. It's the uh, mic. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Stephen. Um, fascinating topic, Stephen. Um, I have a question. The the CRT people, uh, uh, you know, that you mentioned at the beginning, who are uh, saying that you know all, all whites are inherently racist and uh, everything is to be cast in racial terms. That seems to me unbelievably stupid. Unbelievably stupid. I mean, it's one not the only thing around that I feel that way about, but it it stands out and. And a lot of the history, even you know, someone who's not as versed in history as you are, um, knows perfectly well that that it's not a white-black issue, despite the American experience, where most of people who were enslaved were black because they came from Africa. But never, nevertheless, um, when I when I encounter something that I I think is just incredibly stupid and also prevalent, I want to know why. And so imagine that there's someone from that point of view in the room with us. Uh, there isn't, I'd probably not. But in any case, what, Stephen, if you were sitting down with such a person, what, what kind of arguments would you um, think they would raise? And it, let me just give you a framework. Do you think there's a genetic thing about whites that makes them uh, racist and black people you know, somewhat better, or is it is it all cultural? Um, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you're right. I think it is it is stupid at one level. I think, and it also it is historically uninformed. Uh, although I think there is a another category. You started to talk about them. That those who they historically know better. But something else is going on with them, either some psychological issues or some political agenda that they uh, they just set aside whatever historical knowledge they have or they want to distort the historical knowledge. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, but, but your, your comment reminds me that I think my primary motivation for doing this session was uh, not so much to analyze those people, but to warn people uh, against falling into that trap of accepting the framing. So it would be we're, that we're running into more and more people who are uh, racialists in their thinking, and they have more platforms. Uh, you know, as Scott is pointing out, they are becoming institutionalized in, 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 uh, in corporations and politics. So there's, there's more and more of it around and I have a little worry about there being a kind of uh, reactionary or revenge uh, um, uh, rhetorical strategy that people try to accept the, the black-white framing and then just to start arguing on behalf of, of, of whites and, and to, to, to keep it as a, a black versus white issue. So just as a temptation to, to, uh, to avoid. Now, what you're asking then at the at the tail end is, you know, if we try to, uh, as philosophers or psychologists or biologists, as informed people, to take seriously the claim that there is something inherently wrong with whites, that whites are collectively racist and therefore collectively guilty, uh, where exactly is that? Is it you know built into uh, white genes? Is it built uh, built into or kind of now baked into something called white culture, such that whites uh, you know consciously or unconsciously get conditioned by it when they are growing up? 
I think one would see both versions of that. I think there are people who uh, who are uh, believe that there are intrinsic racial differences and they would then want to cast some races in a superior or inferior position. So some of them will accept that there are uh, racial differences between white, brown, black, yellow, red, and so on, and just uh, reverse what has been a recent pattern instead of just saying that whites are, are are biologically or genetically superior to uh, to just say that uh, whites are genetically inferior and, and to try to get some satisfaction out of out of that uh i think there are other ones uh and i, I see this in the, the the crt the critical race theory and critical uh, feminist theories as well where both of them, they go back and forth. Uh, there are sub-schools. Some of them will emphasize the biological basis, but that tends to be a minority. Most of them are, are coming out of uh, uh, social, con social conditioning, various forms of environmental determinism. And so what they typically will do when they get pushed on this is say that in the wrong culture, right? if it's male culture, or in this case, if it's white culture, it's something that has just been so baked into the culture for so long and operates at, a, at, at an unconscious level uh, that uh, uh, you might as well just say that it's, it's part of that identity without necessarily making a strong genetic claim. But uh, um, let me uh, stop there. I don't know that I addressed all of what you were saying in your comment, David. So let me uh, ask if you want to follow up on that. I'm not sure if he's uh, he may have stepped away for a moment, but ah, okay. uh, you you are muted. But in the meantime, let me just follow up on that to say. Um, okay, Scott, I just unmuted. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, I do have a follow-up, and um, I want to appeal to uh, one of Ayn Rand's themes that um, in Atlas Shrugged and elsewhere, that there, there's an aspect of the moral code, uh, you know, altruist moral code, that elevates the people considered by the as at, at the bottom, the victims, and treats them as victims of, um, and whereas the, the rich people, you know, it's harder for a rich person to get through the, uh, get to heaven than through a, a camel through the eye of a needle. And there's an inversion of values here that she talked about where, um, you know, being smart, intelligent, beautiful, or what as or successful doesn't make you a good person, but you know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person either. And so the, the, um, she calls it the, uh, the, the kind of inversion of values where victims get honored and celebrated at the expense uh, of anyone regarded as an oppressor, uh, yes. as better. And yeah. that seems to me, that runs across so many issues. Like, I, I think it, it has to do with um, the anti-Semitism we're seeing today uh, because the Jews have been so successful, especially in Israel. It, it, it pertains to uh, black and white, in particular, our topic tonight. And I'm just wondering if, if what you see as, uh, whether you see influences of that as part of the cultural influences that lead people to the view we're, we're addressing, the CRT types. Yeah, I think that's a hugely important uh, part of the, uh, part of it, the inversion of values, uh, uh, where, in this strong form of altruism, it is the weaker uh, that is to be valorized and that there's always suspicion attached to the stronger. Now, I think that works hand in hand with, might, with what might be the deeper and more universal element, which is the collectivism. Uh, I think the altruism is stronger yeah. as a theme in Western civilization, partly because of the Judeo-Christian inheritance. But my sense is that uh, across the globe, there still is a significant amount of collectivism, that young kids, what they learn from a very early age is that their, 
their ethnic identity uh, and or their religious identity is fundamental at first. And they really learn to think of themselves as part of a group. And then when they get a little older, part of their conditioning is to say that there are all of these other groups out there and we are in adversarial conflict relationships with those other groups. So they think, and this is not yet to think in terms of altruism, it, but it's our group versus those other groups and whether our group is doing better or worse relative to those other groups becomes the most important issue. And uh, I think the way it typically starts, though, is that there is the idea that uh, I want to have a kind of uh, self-esteem in my life. I want to think well of myself. But what that means is I need to get that by a, my group being strong and successful. So, uh, and, I'm, and I'm going to then get my, my reflected self-worth or my, my group self-worth. Then what happens with many groups that have uh, not been too successful is they get a kind of uh, wounded pride when they realize that, uh, that their group lost uh, historically or is backward or is behind the times. And all of these other groups that they have been taught are their enemies have been a whole lot more successful. And so they go from striving for a kind of uh, uh, self-esteem through thinking of their group as being strong and excellent to realizing that their group is weak and then so they start to feel inferior and then that wounded self-esteem can lead to some pretty ugly psychological things. Uh, and I think one of the things that then can happen is they can start working when they hear about altruism as a moral code and that there are lots and lots of people who will give you special privileges and bend over backwards to be nice to you. Uh, if you are a member of a weaker group, then they will start using that as a strategic tactic. But on that hypothesis, it's the collectivism that is deeper and stronger. And the so the altruism that comes along as a, as a, a tactical or a strategical weapon that works with it. So I, I hear what you're saying is that, that what we used to call, or maybe still do, tribal politics, uh, uh, you know, identity politics, is um, is not just political. It it goes deep into the cultural uh, realm. Yes. Yes. And and uh, you know, but just by contrast, think about the attitudes toward Asians in the late 19th century. You know, the, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, and and they were looked down on, and now. No one is coming to their defense because they're so successful. Yes. But uh, okay. Anyway, thanks, Stephen. That's your uh, what you what you your analysis. I think is great. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Sometimes I, I remember uh, some years ago at my university, we were having a, um, an event my center sponsored, and uh, somehow we got talking about uh, European politics and European culture. And uh, we had people from quite a few different cultures. We got started talking, I don't know how the conversation got there, about the, the English and their battle against the Spanish Armada and how the Spanish Armada went, uh, was sunk and they lost and they went from being uh, the, the superpower of the time to into a decline phase as the British were rising and so on. And I remember one Spanish guy there who was really upset with this and you know for most of it it was just an interesting historical thing but it bothered him uh and he got angry uh, uh at this being pointed out that the spanish had lost this major war and what came out the more he talked was that he thought of himself first and foremost as a spanish person and that his identity and his pride was as a Spanish person. And the fact that Spain used to be great, but it had declined was really wounding to him. And he just didn't want that history to be true. Uh, <laughs> so that's uh, just one example, but I, uh, I see it uh, sometimes in Arabic cultures and Persian cultures where people will glorify their history 
and it really matters to them and bothers them that they uh, they see their their culture as having been in decline and it's like they as individuals feel inferior because their culture has gone through a decline phase. Yeah, that's right. I remember uh, something Bin Laden said uh, after 9-11. He referred to the tragedy of Andalusia. That is that the Arabs were driven out of Spain. Yes. And I thought, holy cow, he's still, he's still brooding over something that happened, what was it, uh, 700 years ago. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, David. Yeah, uh, just just another anecdote, but one that always sticks with me is uh, has to do with my uh, my my father and my mother. They made a trip to uh, to Ireland uh, some years ago, and they were they had a rental car. They were driving around all over the place, and apparently they were staying at a bed and breakfast. But they went past frequently some gypsies, and these were like Irish gypsies who had a horse drawn caravan, and they would just park in some farmer's field for a while. Uh, and stay there for a week or two until the farmer asked them to move on. So my, my dad was always one of these guys who would just talk to anybody and become instant friends. So he stopped and started talking to the father, uh, uh, saying, you know, asking him about his lifestyle, noticing there was the kids, saying, you know, why aren't your kids in school and all this, that, and the other thing. And the guy started telling a story. You know, he said, well, you know, I, I would like my kids to go to school and uh, I would like to have a better life for my family. But we lost our land. And uh, so we've been forced into this kind of nomadic lifestyle. And my dad was saying, oh, my, that's that's terrible. Uh, you know, that you lost your land. And uh, well, who took your land from you? And he says, well, it's the damned English who took uh, took our land. And uh, but I said, oh, that's really bad. And the guy was saying you know, how much he hated the English. And eventually, my dad asked, well, so when when uh, when did you guys lose your land? And the guy said, you know, scratched his head for a moment. He said it was 1640s. So for this guy's way of thinking and uh, his whole lifestyle has to go back to like 300 years ago, the English did some bad things to his ancestors. And as a result of that, he now uh, feels like a victim who has to live that kind of lifestyle. And he still hates the English for it. So uh, that's a kind of collectivism. I don't know if it's tribal, but uh, um, that's deep. And that's in a lot of places around the world. Great. Well, we're uh, very pleased to have another senior scholar with us, uh, Professor Richard Salzman. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Scott. Uh, David, uh, in mentioning to Stephen the idea of how can there be such overtly stupid claims, you know, by CRT people, I'm reminded of there's a line in Atlas uh, in uh, the Fountainhead, but I can't remember who said it. But it's a great line. It's something like, "Don't bother to examine a folly; only ask what it accomplishes." So we hear follies all the time, right? We hear crazy stupid stuff but if you flip beyond that and say well what are they trying to do is it possible to just say okay this claim that uh, there's white privilege everywhere and it's unavoidable and it the real thing is they're trying to accomplish something and my guess would be they're trying to put whole groups of people on their heels apologetic obsequious you know feeling guilty so in other words they don't really do believe it david they're saying stupid things, but they don't believe it. But they have another, they have an agenda. And the, the difficulty I've always faced is if you say something like this, people will say, you can't question people's motives. You have to take their claims uh, on the face of it. But I think we, sh I mean, Ayn Rand was known for saying people are motivated, you know, in nefarious ways to do certain things. Malevolence, malevolent universe, nihilism. So... I, I just throw that out there because um, when I see stupidity, I, I flip to the fountainhead quote and say, what are these people trying to accomplish with their foolishness? Yeah, I think that's exactly. Okay, Stephen. Sure. No, I think, uh, Richard, that's that's exactly right. I have a, a crude distinction between uh, kind of the average Twitter user or social media person who says stupid things. And I think a lot of that just is kind of low-grade tribalism. 
and uh, uh, I dismiss it as, as such. But when, when you elevate it and you start talking about people who are intellectuals and professors who are uh, kind of card-carrying members of CRT, critical race theory, I, I think these people do know better. And in their cases, they are using uh, the race card as a rhetorical weapon. And they do know better. They know the history, but they go out of their way to obfuscate the history. And they know all of the rhetorical tactics. And they do know that, as you put it, it puts a lot of people back on on their back on their heels. Now, at the same time, dwelling on the the negative here, one of the things I think is encouraging, though, is that we are, uh, I think, for the last eight to ten years, uh, having a a racialist moment, if I can call it that, where there is this big upsurge in talk about race and race issues and and uh, institutional racism or not. Uh, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, the history of slavery, and so on. And my sense is that this is all to the good because what it has given millions of people an opportunity to do is actually learn some history that uh, they didn't learn in high school or, or anywhere in their formal education. But now because these issues are being discussed by tens and, and hundreds of millions of people around the world, uh, um, uh, you know, the historical facts do come out, the, the memes do come out, the graphs do come out, and uh, I, th I think we will emerge better informed and stronger for it. I agree, Stephen. I agree entirely. Thanks. Great. Uh, I, and I want to encourage others, if you have questions, to raise your hand. But um, let me just ask, I mean, can we at least notice patterns or similarities in cultural groups I, I know some irish guys that you know drink and fight a little bit without it meaning it's all of them or i don't trust them uh are there the cultural patterns uh i think yeah absolutely there are cultural patterns and i think that's part of what anthropology and sociology uh can and should properly be doing uh, and then taking culture, which is still a very broad label, and breaking it down to its component elements, uh, you know, language and religion and uh, people's uh, sense of their own history and modes of dress and cuisine and uh, sporting practices and food and drink practices and so on. I think all of those things are uh, legitimate areas of study and in varying degrees all add up to what we call culture. Uh, and I do think that, you know, a lot of times the stereotypes uh, that we all are aware of uh, do have some basis in, uh, in reality. Could I just say something to Stephen, Scott? I, I, I don't want to consume too much time, but the positive side of what Stephen is saying is that, you know, all these cultural differences uh, between Italians, Japanese, Chinese, English, you know, French, whatever, um, there are different styles and different cultures and personalities that are typical of those cultures. And that's great. Um, you know, that is, um, you know, people who have a cosmetology, Cosmopolitan bent, to use the term that one of our, our fellow scholars, uh, Jason Hill, has used, is is a way of appreciating a wider world of human possibility, and the um, you know just the talents, the passions, uh, different you know the what I've called the salt of Jewish humor and the uh, the passion of Italians and the cooking of French. <laughs> Um, I, all that stuff is, you know, I could do any of those things, but I can't do all of them. And so, um, it's a way of appreciating the diversity of human culture and the contributions that different, it's like a cultural division of labor, I guess I could call it. And with the same values as the economic division of labor, that's all. Okay. Yeah. Nicely said. Great. Um, you know, I mean, 
in, in a place where being a racist is the worst thing that you can be called, does it, I mean, aren't there different degrees of racism? It's just, you know, for someone saying, oh, he doesn't look like me, strange, I'm going to be cautious to, you know, I want to go out and kill everyone that looks like him. Yeah, I think for sure, if we take uh, race, uh, racism as a, as a, as a concept, uh, yeah, for sure, it's going to come in degrees. There are some people who uh, just easily adopt certain kinds of stereotypes. Uh, sometimes it's a more perceptual thing of uh, having not been raised around people with different skin colors. So you're, you're naive and you notice things uh, in an overt way compared to someone who's blase because they've been raised around people from all over the world. To, uh, to the stronger things where you start ascribing cognitive differences or moral differences to racism. Uh, to even a uh, more stronger thing where you start acting on the basis of that, treating people differently on the basis of uh, your racial categorizations to even uh, stronger things where you start to, trying to pass laws. So I think, yes, all of that would be part of a full kind of sociology of what goes on in people who are racists. Great. You um, alluded to revenge racism. Is it fair to um, maybe say postmodernism and or CRT is kind of an intellectual rationalization for that? I think so, yes, for sure. Um, yeah, I think there are, I think revenge racism comes out when one has uh, acquired a racial identity. You think of yourself in some important way as a member of a race and you pin your identity and worth on your, uh, your racial grouping. And then you are a member of a group that you think has been rightly or wrongly uh, beaten up on by history, uh, by other groups, but then, and you think that that's wrong, that it was historically wrong, whether you individually were affected by it or not. And so you want on behalf of your group to uh, make up for that in some way and revenge is a uh, is one way of of doing so now i think that can be kind of a low grade uh and there's lots of low grade revenge racism out there but i do think uh that many of the intellectual strategies that are being developed by crt types they are enemies of the Enlightenment and the achievements of Enlightenment, and part of the Enlightenment is this idea of universal rights of individuals. Uh, and if you want to attack that principle, then reviving various forms of racism uh, is, uh, is useful. Uh, it can be a very good strategic weapon, particularly in a culture like ours where accusations of racism are taken very seriously and many people uh, uh, are often unjustifiably feel some guilt over historical acts of racism. So, so yes, I think revenge racism, I don't know if I made up that term or not, but it is one that I think is, uh, is, is, is useful to describe it, uh, that, that strategy. Great. Um, and, you know, that you alluded to also, you spoke of the double standard that, um, you know, that the historically marginalized groups, they say, can't be racist or bigoted. Doesn't that create its own kind of imbalance when discussing these issues? Yes, that's uh, that one doesn't come out of critical race theory directly, although critical race theories have adopted it, that's something that comes straight out of postmodernism, where you, re you get rid of truth and objectivity, standards of justice and goodness, and you reduce everything to power. 
So power becomes your operative explanatory concept. And then it becomes a matter of who has more power and who has less power. And then uh, the double standard is uh, falls out of that where you just say the strong will always use, there always will be a double standard, one standard that the strong have for themselves and the standard that they use when they're dealing with the weak. Uh, but then if you are on the, uh, on, on the half, you see yourself as allied with the weaker victimized groups, this goes back to David's earlier point, then you will just uh, adopt that double power standard on behalf of your group. So you will use accusations against what you think of as the dominant oppressor group, but excuse your own group to, uh, from uh, having to live up to that standard. Well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, next Wednesday at 5 p.m., the Atlas Society asks Rand biographer Jennifer Burns. And then uh, next Wednesday at 6.30 Eastern p.m., back here on Spaces, Rob Trzinski will be doing the one big thing you're getting wrong about consciousness. So we hope you'll join us for that. Thanks to everyone who joined, listened, asked questions, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on the next one. Take care. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Scott.